Romans chapter 5, verse 18 through 21. We're going to consider the question. We've been considering a lot of questions each Sunday from the Westminster Confession of Faith. And even though it's a historical document that probably most of us don't really read on a regular basis um, because it's has archaic and dated language. Um, maybe we just didn't grow up with the confessions. Uh, we just grew up with a more free evangelical culture. Um, a lot of these questions, although they're old, have a lot to do with our lives today. And one of the topics that the confessions covers is what we're gonna consider today. Are people good or evil? When you consider human beings, are they essentially good or evil? I remember that one uh, Batman movie, I think, by Christopher Nolan, and there's a scene where Batman has Joker, and Joker's dangling, right, upside down. And uh, they, they engage in a philosophical discussion about whether people are essentially inherently good or evil. And uh, basically, those of you who saw the movie know the scene, right? Uh, there, are two, there are two boats. Uh, one is full of convicts, right? And the other is full of just citizens, right? And the, the question is, will they blow each other up to save their own lives, right? Um, and of course, the movie concludes with the, with the, with the conclusion of uh, people are good, right? And of course, uh, Batman says that with his growling voice, right? That's something I never, I can never forget. People are good, you know? <laughs> it's like, okay, totally disagree with it, but sounded so cool, you know? Um, and I have to say, as cool as Batman is, um, and as cool as Nolan Batman is specifically, um, as we confessed in our confession, I believe God has a very different thing to say when it comes to that, right? When it comes to that. Uh, but before we get into all that, let's read God's word together. Romans chapter 5, verse 18 through 21. Therefore, as one trespass led to con condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that, as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, it's very important how you answer that question. Whether people are inherently good, or are they inherently evil? When people are born, are they good people at the core? Or are they evil at the core? And of course, the popular thing to say right now these days is to say people are good. You know, we're, we're, we have good hearts. We are good people. We do bad things sometimes, but essentially, we're good. And, you know, I grew up believing that too, because, you know, you want to you be positive. You want to you have hopes for humanity, that humanity won't destroy itself. And also, you also I wanted to feel good about myself because I was part of the human condition. And to say that humanity is essentially evil is to say I am evil. And I didn't want to say that, right? Well, before we even 
get there, right? You have to consider, if you say that people are good, then what you're saying is that people don't need Jesus Christ. They, they don't need a Savior. You're, you're saying a Savior is sent by God because someone needs saving. And in this case, it's, it's from sin and death and God's wrath and punishment. And the thing is, good people don't deserve those things. So if you say when people are good, you're saying Jesus Christ is unnecessary. A savior is unnecessary. That's what you're saying. Because good people shouldn't be punished. Good people don't deserve wrath. Good people shouldn't go to hell. But the thing is, that's the very reason why Jesus came to die and become a savior to people. It's because people needed that. And so when, if you were to answer the question saying that, yes, people are morally good, then what you're saying, as I said before, is that people don't need a savior because they're good enough. They can make their way to God. They can make their way to heaven on their own. They don't need the help of a savior, right? Uh, there are other people who will say, that's not even the question that you should be asking. Some people will even say that good and evil are just social constructions, meaning there's really no such thing as good and evil. The only reason why you call certain things good and certain things evil is because your society or your culture has made that up so that you can better understand your, your world and you can get along with life. It's a very attractive um, uh, worldview, but there are a lot, of, a lot of key weaknesses to that kind of worldview. Let me show you a few of them. For example, death, right? When you have a loved one and that person dies, how do you think about that? Do you feel, if you really cared about someone and that person died, do you feel that something evil has happened, something wrong has happened? Do you cry or do you feel loss and loneliness and sadness and pain? If you do, essentially, even if you don't say the words, this is an evil thing, or if you don't say it in that way, your emotions and your heart and your internal state actually says it for you, right? It says something is very wrong with the world because someone that I really care about is now gone and dead. You see, there's something wrong with that. That's why the human heart aches when that happens. And on the opposite side, what about if someone that you hated just died, right? <laughs> and how you would feel. We feel like it, that's a good thing. Oh, good. The world's a better place now. <laughs> right? um, how about harm and disadvantage to, your, to yourself? When harm and disadvantage, physical, psychological, emotional, economic harm, disadvantage comes to you, do you feel like, whoa, this is great. I love my life. Right? Or do you feel like, man, something, something wrong just happened. This shouldn't be happening. Right? If someone cheats you of your money, if someone cheats on you, if someone, right, does, if someone punches you in the face, do you feel that you have been wrong? If you do, then yes, there is this sense of right and wrong that's given to any human being. A sense of self-worth. Do you feel like that you're worth something and that that's a good thing, right? If you do, you feel there is some sort of good in this world. And just over a general concept of reciprocation, meaning like 
if you invest in something, do you feel like there should be some sort of return, right? If someone is good, do you feel like they should be rewarded with good? And if someone is evil, they should be rewarded with evil, right? If you have any kind of sense of that, then you have a sense of good and evil. Because what you're aching and what your heart is longing for is justice. It's longing for justice. And the thing is, justice becomes nonsense if there's no such thing as good and evil, and if that's purely a social construction, right? One last thing, security. <laughs> it's genius. I left this for last because I just, I thought it was very insightful. Ravi Zacharias, he's a philosopher, theologian, you know, apologist, right? His ministry is actually headquartered here in Norcross, right? He posed this question to someone at a university. He goes from university to university giving talks about Christianity. And the people who come and fill the halls of his talks, they're like skeptic. They're Christians there too. There are other religious people, but a lot of them are skeptics, agnostics, etc. Right? And so uh, they the people on the floor, they have a chance to give like to give impromptu questions to this guy, to Robbie. And someone asked him this question, right, about good and evil. And he, he, the guy from the floor is basically saying, good and evil are social constructions. Why, why are you so upset about this, right? And this is what Ravi said. He got up from his chair, right? And he walked, to the, he walked to, the, to the front of the stage, and he said to him just one simple question. It wasn't even philosophical. He just said, do you lock your doors at night? <laughs> and I thought that was genius because it shows that this guy who believes that good and evil doesn't really exist and they're just all in our head and in our society's head, the fact that he locks his doors shows that there is some sort of wrongness that could happen to him if he doesn't lock his doors. There is some sort of evil out there that he needs to guard his house with. Uh, again, sorry, right? And it was a very insightful question because Ravi, not, not only did he target the, the mind and the argument itself, but he targeted his heart. And he said, yeah, you could say this, but where's your heart? You know, your heart says there is such a thing as good and there is such a thing as evil. Now, the reason why I'm sharing this with you is you can't say, you can't answer that question, are people good or evil? until you arrive at some sort of moral standard. It needs to be some higher moral standard above humanity that governs what's good and evil before you can even say there's a such thing as a good or, good or evil thing, right? Now, in verse 15, I'm sorry, in verse 18, Paul in Romans, in the passage that we saw today, he assumes the higher standard by three words mainly. I want you to take a look at the words trespass, condemnation, and justification. All those words in verse 18, therefore, as one trespass, that's a misstep, someone intentionally decided to enter into someone else's realm unlawfully. It assumes that something Right was there, and something evil has happened. The word condemnation. Something evil has happened, and therefore there needs to be some sort of punishment that comes for that evil action. That's what that word assumes. And the last word, justification, it assumes that someone who is in the wrong 
should be made right. Right? So Paul, for Paul, there needs to be a moral standard. Right? And all this to say, to teach about one very important truth, and it's called imputation. And if you noticed in our confession of faith that we said together, that word impute came up. Now what does that mean? This word will determine, I mean, theologically it's really important, but I'm telling you, in your lives right now, if you understand imputation and accept it, it will change how you approach, how you feel about approval. It will determine whether you are constantly seeking someone's approval and acceptance for the rest of your life, or whether you come to a point where you're not bitter about people and you come to this angry place where you don't care about anybody but yourself, right? It's not that. If you understand imputation, you will come to a point where it will free you from that desire and that need to be approved by people, to be accepted by people, whoever those people are, everybody has certain people they want to be accepted by, right? And approved by. It will free you from that, but it will not take you to a place where you're angry at people, you're bitter at people, and you just, uh, they, they don't conform to your expectations, so you're, you just kind of disown them, you distance, distance yourself from them. But a proper understanding of imputation will free you to engage with them in love. Okay, let me say that again. When you understand imputation well, it will cause you, it will change how you live your life. It will cause you to be freed from seeking people's approval and acceptance, and it will make you go to them, not run away from them, not distance yourself from them. It will make you go to them to love them as Christ has loved you with that same love. That's what imputation does, right? And all of us, we may be on a different level in all these, in this area. Some of us may be struggling with um, seeking people's approval because we just need to please people and we want their praise, we want their acceptance, right? Others, that's not what we struggle with. We could care less about what people think, but we have no desire to love them as Christ loved us. You see, what imputation does, it brings those two worlds together, and it gives that perfect balance that can only be found in Christ, where you don't seek the people's approval, but you also seek them, not to get something from them, like approval, but to give something to them, like your life and your love, and the love of Christ, right? So, let me, let me try to explain to you what imputation is. And to do that, you need to, we need to consider two people, Abraham and Jesus Christ. Uh, if you want, you can turn to Genesis 15, verses 5 through 6. And it's talking about Abraham. And in that passage, God calls Abraham outside. He brought him outside. And it's, it's night. And back then, there's no light pollution, right? So it's all dark. And so when you look up, you see a countless number of stars, right? It's beautiful. God calls Abraham outside. He said, Abraham, come outside, right? 
I said, look, look up into heaven. And he sees all these stars in the middle of the night. And he says, if you're able, try to count them. And God says, this is, this is how many offspring I will give you. Right? That means a lot to Abraham because Abraham at this time, he's a nobody and he has no future. Right? He's done nothing worthy of, of, of recognizing in his life. God calls him. Right? He's not a, there's no such thing as a Jewish chosen uh, you know, nation. There's no such thing as a holy nation right now. Abraham is a Gentile. Right? He's an uncircumcised Gentile. Right? Having no worth in any Jewish you know, understanding. And God calls him out and he says, this is how I will bless you. I will make your offspring as numerous as these stars. And if you look in Genesis 15, Abraham responds with belief and faith. He believed the Lord, the Bible says. And so what happens is God counted it to, counted it to him as righteousness. Meaning, God considered Abraham's faith in God, right? He considered that as righteousness, right? Abraham is not righteous. He's a Gentile. He's uncircumcised. If Abraham were alive, there, after the time that the Levitical law, the Jewish law was given, nobody in, in the Jewish nation would consider Abraham holy or righteous. Nobody. They would consider him a Gentile. They would not even give. Uh, uh, they wouldn't. They would not even give him time. They would not spend time with him. They would not uh, fellowship with him. They would not eat with him. He would be considered an outsider, right? But according to the Bible and according to God's very word, it says that at that time, when he should be considered an unrighteous person, because he didn't do anything merit God's righteousness, right? God counted it to him. He regarded it. He regarded it. Now that's very radical if you think about it, right? Which I'm going to come to, but Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4, verse 5, 7 through 10. Verse 5 and verse 7 through 10. It says, and to the one who does not work, but believes in him, who justifies the ungodly. Do you see that? Do you see what's going on there? Justifies the ungodly. God didn't justify, God didn't regard as right someone who was already godly. He justified someone who was in a state of ungodliness. Just like God called Abraham righteous when Abraham did nothing to be righteous before God. Right? And in verse 7 in Romans chapter 4, it says, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? Being circumcised was a big deal for the Jews. Again, if you were circumcised, you were considered righteous. You were considered accepted and part of God's people, according to the Jews at this time. And this is what Paul says. He reminds them of this. He says, For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. Meaning, before Abraham did any, 
kind of righteous work or deed, God counted him as righteous. He regarded Abraham as righteous. This is really radical because if you think about the people in your life that you're willing to bring into your inner circle and count them as part of your family, your life, and you divulge your personal life to them, and you make yourself vulnerable, it's very difficult to accept them unless they have first proven themselves. And what imputation teaches us, that God, before Abraham had a chance to prove himself worthy before God, God accepted him. He counted him as righteous. It's very difficult to do when you think about, you know, making friends, uh, having a family, whatnot, right? And Jesus Christ, right? The second person we want to consider is Jesus Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.21. Some people say this is, if not the most important verse about imputation, it's definitely one of the most important ones. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. For our sake, he made him, so God made Christ, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. This is teaching imputation. So what's happening here is that the sin that was imputed to us from Adam, because Adam and Eve sinned, right, according to Paul's argument in Romans that we just read, because Adam sinned, his sin was regarded, was counted toward us. So we also are guilty of Adam's sin. Now, the natural human response, which not only people in modern society today will have to this, it's like, God, that's not fair. Why am I responsible for someone else's sin who sinned thousands of years ago? That's not my fault, right? It's true. It's very valid. But God does it anyway because he has a greater reason. But before I go into that, even in the Old Testament, people complained about this. If you look up sour grapes in the Old Testament, just do a search, right? The way that they said this about the unfairness of imputation, right, was that the there's a, there's a proverb, a Jewish proverb, that says, the fathers have eaten sour grapes, but it is, uh, it is our teeth, you know, uh, that's affected by it, right? The fathers have eaten the sour grapes, but we're the ones tasting the sourness, right? That's essentially, it's my paraphrase, right? And basically, that was the Jewish proverb way of saying, Wait a second, someone else sinned and I'm responsible for that sin? I have to be held responsible for that? That's totally not fair, right? There's a reason why God does that. It's because when you come to Christ, God not only imputed Adam's sin to us, he imputes our sin to Christ. The one who knew no sin was condemned as sin. Right? So Christ, who did nothing wrong, he did not sin at all, he died and was punished as if he did everything wrong. Our sin that we committed, right, was put on Christ. Our sin that we were born into because of Adam's sin was put on Christ. And in effect, what happens after that is Christ's righteousness 
His righteousness gets imputed to us. It's tremendous. Right? If I were to break all this fancy language down into just regular, normal, day-to-day speech, imputation looks like this. God regards, something that happens in the head, God regards believers, Christians, as forgiven people. Secondly, he declares them forgiven. And thirdly, he treats them as forgiven. That's, what, that's all imputation is, guys. The way that it looks like in real life. Imputation, when God regards Adam's sin as our own sin, and when God regards our sin as Christ, he puts it to Christ. And then when Christ's righteousness is given to us, all that means is that in God's mind, he genuinely, without reservation, and I don't think it's very difficult for us to do this to people who have offended us, right? He regards them as completely forgiven, as if, yeah, as completely forgiven. And then he declares it, he makes it public. So by making it public, he's having himself be held accountable to the witnesses to his declaration. God is a faithful God. So when he makes that public, he's not afraid about being inconsistent with his forgiveness. He's not going to be like, yeah, I forgive you, but then act like he doesn't. He's not going to be like, yeah, I forgive you, but then when we again offend him in the same way and like 10 times over or we do something new, he's never going to come to the point where he's going to be like, you remember that time when you did this to me? He's never going to be like that. So he's made it public. He's not only regarded us as forgiven, he will never bring it up. Because he's once for all declared that we're forgiven. And lastly, he treats us that way. He treats us that way. And you know what? It's not the same as, it's not, I don't think it's really accurate to say that he treats us as if we never sinned. Because that's like going back to the, Garden of Eden. And that's not what's happening in redemption. You know, in glory, we're not going back to an Eden. Do you guys realize this? It's not, heaven is not like if sin never happened. You know what the beauty about heaven is? Is that it acknowledges that sin has happened and it completely ruined everything that was good that God had declared to be good. And God, in his tremendous love and wisdom, found a way to completely destroy that problem. So that even though people and God, who is fully aware of the sinful past that we've had in heaven, he will not, that sin is no longer in play. Sin and death has been cast into the lake of fire. It's done away with. And that's the beauty of it. It's God doesn't pretend like, God doesn't live, his mind doesn't live in some fantasy world that he contrives in order to try to get along with us, right? He doesn't pretend like things didn't happen. What he does is, yes, it did happen, but I love you anyway. And I will make sure 
that things, that that never happens again. That's God. And that's what heaven is. And that's why being in heaven after going through all the sinfulness and all the corruption that you may have experienced, that you will experience in this life before you die and before Jesus Christ calls you home, that's why it's worth it. That's what imputation is. And um, I want to leave you with that. And I want to challenge you. If you believe in imputation, which you should, because the Bible teaches it, that our, the way that God forgives us is that even though we're not righteous, He regards us, He declares us, and He treats us as righteous. And it's through the work of the Holy Spirit that changes our hearts. And it's through the return of the resurrected Christ, the Lamb who was slain. And it's through His second coming that will completely change us to have glorified bodies and souls so that we can sin no longer. We will not have any desire to sin any longer, right? If you believe that, then the way that you live your life today, it has to change. It has to. It can be by small baby steps. It can be for some people by huge leaps, you know, in any given moment. But our life will change. It's extremely radical, the way that God forgave us. The fact that he regards us as forgiven, even though we shouldn't be regarded that way. And that he declares publicly to everybody, this person is forgiven. And that he treats them that way. And there is never a moment that he fails to treat us as forgiven children of God. And how that causes our hearts to burn and causes our knees to buckle with the awareness of the, the, of the weight of God's love upon our lives. And then we come to a point where we ask our own heart and we say to our soul, how can I not love this person that way? when Christ has loved me this way? How can I not love my brother and my sister? How can I not even love my enemies? When Christ, when I was an enemy with God, and he regarded me as forgiven when I shouldn't have been, how can I not? Right? And if you're asking yourself, that is really hard to do. How is that possible? Well, you know, Nothing's impossible with God. And there's a reason why in sanctification, Paul says that it's the fruit of the Spirit that we bear. It's not the fruit of Tay. It's not the fruit of, and then you can put your name in there. It's not you who create the fruit. You're just a branch on the vine, a glorious branch on the vine who is Christ. And I heard it this way, the sap, right? Because I heard, I think, I, I'm, I'm, going, I'm going by what one person told me because I feel like that person has more of a scientific mind than I do. He said, it's the sap that creates the fruit. Is that true, biology majors? Is that true? <laughs> Matthew's like, why are you looking at me? <laughs> right, is that true? June, you're, you're a biology major, aren't you? 
but anyways. Oh, oh, never mind. <laughs> yeah, I heard it's the sap. And so if that's true, assuming that's true, some of you guys are Googling it now, right? We're just a branch. You know, you look at John 15, we're not the sap, we're the branch. All we do is hang on for dear life. Well, actually, it's the vine that holds us, right? And then the Spirit of God, who is the sap, right? He creates the fruit. And we just happen to be branches who get to display and look good because of it. Right? That's it. That's all we are. We're just branches. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for bringing us together. And I pray that as we contemplate what imputation means and how it frees us from the oppression to seek approval and acceptance from others, but how it also engages our hearts and ignites our hearts to love those who may not deserve our love, like we never deserved your love. Lord, may the way that you have forgiven us by imputing Christ's righteousness to us, may that continue to be the fuel and the life that causes us to live in such a way where we regard others as forgiven as well in Christ where we declare them, where we make it known publicly, and where we treat them that way as well. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.